My name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here at New Life Church, and so glad to be back with you once again. Uh, thank you for affording me the time off uh, these last several weeks. Uh, it's good to be back here with you worshiping, and uh, this morning, uh, I'm not going to share the details of our time away, my time away. Uh, I'm here simply to introduce the speaker to you, Trevor Butch. He is a familiar face to you all. For those of you who don't know, Know who Trevor is. Trevor is our worship director, and uh, I have had the privilege of working closely with him now for three years, right? Is that right? Three years. That's amazing. And there's one thing I can tell you about Trevor, and that is, is that he has a heart for Jesus, and he has a deep love for God's Word. And I was really excited when uh, not too long ago he indicated an interest and a desire to preach, and I just ate that up. And so um, uh, if there's one thing that, that I enjoy doing more than preaching and teaching myself, and that is helping equip and train others to do that. And it's been wonderful working with Trevor to that end. And so uh, I'd like to introduce Trevor to come on up, and uh, I'm going to pray for him here in just a minute. Um, but uh, uh, I just want you to know I love this, this guy. Um, he has been a real blessing to our church, a blessing to me personally, and so glad to be co-laboring together with him. So let me pray. Father God, Lord, I pray for my brother. Uh, Lord, I lift him up to you, and Lord, I thank you for him. Thank you for his heart for you, his love for your word, his desire um, to communicate it uh, even more clearly than he has up to this date. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would infuse him this morning, that you would work through him, that you would encourage us, your saints, uh, through your word. And Father, may you receive all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I am so honored just to be um, up here today, just being able to bring God's word um, today. I'm, I'm really thankful this podium is here because typically I've got an instrument in my hands and I, I don't really know what to do with my hands while I'm up here. I did ask Paul if I could uh, hold my guitar while I was up here, but he, he shot that down pretty much immediately. Um, so that's okay though. So today's passage uh, marks the halfway point in the Gospel of John. Um, throughout the first 10 chapters uh, in John, we've seen Jesus perform many miracles. He has turned water into wine. He's healed the official son. He's healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He's healed the, the eyes of the blind. He's fed the 5,000. And um, the question often gets asked, why did Jesus perform these miracles? So I feel like it would be appropriate this morning, since we're halfway through, to reread the purpose of the Gospel of John, which is found in John 20. In verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, over and over in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus teaches us the purpose of his miracles. It's almost as if he wants us to get that right. So why is it so important that we get this right? See, today I feel like we see in the church, um, just all over the place, we see that these miracles have been twisted into um, a man-centered gospel that basically reduces God to like a genie in the bottle, the health and wealth prosperity gospel that's out there, it tells us wrongly that because Jesus did these miracles, that we can too. 
And it would, should be a regular thing in our lives. So this is a quote from a pastor that's in this, in this camp. It says, Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. We see that this, this is wrong. Um, this is what we see in the Gospel of John, that, that this is not the purpose of Jesus' miracles. We've heard all these things uh, in the pursuit of miracles and teaching in the church today, things like live your best life now and sow your seed and, you know, you can, you name it and claim it. You, can, you just have to have enough faith. See, if we aren't careful we can begin to implement a theology in our lives that is all about chasing these experiences and chasing these miracles, which puts us completely in danger of missing who Jesus really is. You might be expecting God to break through or slay your giants when it's actually promised by Jesus is so much more in this life. It's so much more to this life. On the flip side of this, we could be like the Pharisees in this passage where we are so caught up in, in a dead orthodoxy and tradition that we completely miss who Jesus is. So in today's passage, Jesus is transitioning into being much more clear about who he is and why he performs these miracles, why he does these works. We will see that Jesus' Jesus's miracles prove that he is the Christ and that through his works, we would believe in him. But he also gives us this amazing promise in this passage that he secures our salvation and he holds us in his hands. And that's the promise he makes us. And through this story, Jesus invites all of us to consider his works, believe who he is, who he says he is, and rest secure in his love. Let's pray together before we begin. God, I'm so thankful this morning for your word. I thank you that um, you've given us this, this amazing book that continually tells us who you are, God. I pray today that you give me some wisdom to be able to tell what's in this book, God. Help us to learn and grow in our faith today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'd like to invite all of you guys to open up in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, we're gonna be starting in verse 22 today. So I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So as we will see, this passage marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It is the final part of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. And the next time he comes into Jerusalem will be um, the, uh, the triumphal entry the week of his crucifixion. So in verse 22, it starts out by saying, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So what is the Feast of Dedication? So its origins took place in the time of God's silence in between the Old and New Testaments. Here's just a brief history of what this is. Around 200 BC, Judea was run over by the Syrians. By 168 BC, the Jewish religion had been outlawed. That year, Jerusalem was overrun by the Syrian army. They massacred thousands of people, and the temple was desecrated. They erected a temple to Zeus, and they, they would sacrifice pigs within that, which would be really, um, really against God's law. So the Jews revolted in 166 BC and eventually was led um, by Judas Maccabeus. They retook Jerusalem and they rededicated the temple to God. So the Jewish leaders then proclaimed that they should celebrate this victory with the Feast of Dedication, which eventually became known as the Festival of Lights, or like we know it today, as Hanukkah. So here we get a glimpse of the timeline. The Feast of Booths 
typically takes place, which is what we have just been talking about since chapter 7, typically takes place in late, around late September, early October, and Hanukkah takes place in December. It also says it was winter when he was walking in the temple. So we know that he was in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This is kind of what it looks like, kind of a rendering of it. Um, it would have been an area of the temple where people would gather, and it would be large enough to accommodate large crowds. So people, the Pharisees would come, they would teach there. Um, there would be so many people around at this time because it was the Feast of Dedication. For the Jewish leaders, it would be the perfect place to attempt to trap Jesus. There would have been a crowd there that they could rile up and try to, try to turn on Jesus if, if, if and when he said something that they would deem blasphemous. But for Jesus, it was the perfect place to minister to his people. So we see in verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Greek word for gathered here is kuklo, which means literally to surround or encircle. So the Pharisees, they were like, we're not going to get, let him get away this time. We're going we're gonna to trap him here. We're going to circle around him, and he is not going to escape this time. Of course, he's Jesus. He could easily escape from them. So they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And at face value, this seems like a pretty, pretty silly but pointed question. Jesus had had plenty of encounters with the Pharisees um, in regards to this question. Back in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus made a claim to be equal to God after he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, again in chapter 5, talked about witnesses to himself. In verse 36, he had said, But the testimony that I have given... Um, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So even the man born blind that Jesus healed back in chapter 9 told the Jewish leaders that if Jesus was not God, he could do nothing. So Jesus, through his works, had told them already multiple times that he was the Christ. But we see the Pharisees are trying to eliminate Jesus from the picture. They keep asking him questions, riling up the crowds, so that Jesus would say something that would give them an excuse to arrest or kill him. And we see that exactly here in this encounter. But as he always does, Jesus answers their question and gives them so much more. Picking back up in verse 25, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So here, Jesus once again emphasizes that his works bear witness about him. But he also brings up the fact that the works he does are in his father's name, which has already been mentioned several times in the Gospel of John. Jesus is continuing on the metaphor that we heard last week at the beginning of chapter 10. He's talking about himself laying his life down for his sheep, for his sheep. His rebuke of the Pharisees, though, is very pointed. You are not among my sheep. So why aren't, we among, aren't they among his sheep? What separates them from his sheep? Well, verse 27 answers this. It says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And so here we see there are three pieces of evidence of one who is in the flock. Number one, they hear Jesus' voice. So we who are in Christ, we recognize Jesus' voice among all of the other voices that are in the world that are trying to pull us away from him. So if we truly understand God's word, which that is the voice of Jesus, we don't hear Jesus' voice audibly. At least I, I never have. I don't know if anybody else has. Um, it would be awesome if we could, right? Um, but Jesus' word is found in 
the Bible. So if we truly understand God's word and we apply it to our lives, we're equipped to hear the false voices that are in the world. Number two, it says that Jesus knows them. And how beautiful are these three words? So think about it for a second. There might be uh, a celebrity, an athlete, something out, someone out there that you might know every single thing about. You might read their Wikipedia page. You might follow them on Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Um, it could be, I know for the worship team, it's Taylor Swift, right? Because we're all about Taylor Swift. Yeah, you might know every single thing about Taylor Swift, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. Taylor Swift or any of those celebrities will never know anything about us. We are complete strangers. There's complete strangers to Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift doesn't know you, I'm sorry. <laughs> They're like, no, sad, sad day. <laughs> but here's the thing. Praise God that we are not strangers to him. The God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into being, the one who is more beautiful, more amazing, more awe-inspiring than anything we can ever imagine, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than our spouses know us. He has every hair on our heads numbered. So how do you get to know somebody? Will you spend time with them? As believers, we need to spend time in God's word and in prayer. And this isn't just a mere suggestion for the Christian life, but it, it is the mark of a true believer as we grow, as we're sanctified, that we, we long to spend time with God. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And number three in that passage, it says that they follow Jesus. So it's not enough just to hear Jesus's voice. We could have all of the head knowledge in the world about who Jesus is, about who God is, but we may never actually be following Jesus. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament um, is used uh, two different ways. It means to either to literally follow someone or to become a disciple. So Jesus' disciples, they actually did both of those things. They left everything about their former lives to follow him and become his disciples. The definition of that word is to follow, go after, or obey. And if we aren't obeying God's word, are we truly following him? So is this, is this you? Do you recognize Jesus' voice? Does Jesus know you? And do you follow him? Do you obey him? So the Pharisees clearly were not. Jesus for sure knew them. He created them. He knew their hearts. But they continually ignored Jesus' words and did everything in their power to get rid of him. So these next few verses are, are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Pick up in verse 28. It says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So this passage is one of the most comforting, one of the deepest, amazing promises that is in Scripture. It's known as the doctrine of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. We could, use, we could take up a couple of sermon series to really unpack the implications of this truth for our lives. And there are several emphatic statements that Jesus gives us here. He says, I give them eternal life and they, know, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus had just been describing the characteristics of the sheep, that they know him and they follow him. 
And now we see that this is his part of his covenant with his followers, that he gives us eternal life and we will never perish. He doesn't say that we won't have any trouble or that we'll be healthy and wealthy or that everything in our lives will work out for us. But his promise is that we will never perish and that we will have eternal life. And he, snatched, he finished this, this, this statement by saying, no one will snatch them out of my hands. So we are safe in Jesus' hands. This is one of the most beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith, that our faith in Christ is secure in him. True believers will never, ever, ever lose their salvation because he holds our salvation in his hands. This doctrine is one that I, I, I am personally, I'm so passionate about because of just how amazingly comforting it is. So while Jesus gives us eternal life and we are safe in his hands, there's another point to it in verse 29. It says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So we see two things here. We see that Jesus gives the sheep to Jesus and that no one is able to snatch them out of their hands. There's also a describing phrase here for God the Father, that he is greater than all. So no one, I repeat, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that feels like it really sums up everything, right? That's, that pretty much includes everything that we could think of. But Jesus here is clear. His sheep are held not only in his hand, but also in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out of their hand. Throughout the book of John, Jesus has laid out the fact that we have nothing to do with our salvation. And it's only because God grants us faith that we even have faith to begin with. In John 6, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes out, I will never cast, comes to me, I will never cast out. He then says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, right? Amen to that. Um, that's for sure. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So why bring this up? So Hebrews 12 says that not only, that God is not only the author of our faith, but he is also the finisher of our faith. That isn't all. Ephesians 1 says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this one is my favorite. It's 1 Peter 1, 3, 5, or 3 through 5 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So why is the doctrine of eternal security so important? See, this should give us the utmost comfort and assurance in our lives. I fully know that I could not have come to faith unless God granted it to me. And I also know that my flesh does everything it can to tear me away from him. So if we couldn't save ourselves, what makes us think that we can hold our salvation? And if we aren't saved by our own merit, 
then no merit beyond that will keep us saved. The Father holds us eternally secure in his sovereign hand. So I read the story while I was preparing for this message, while the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge was being, was being built. And Paul, you, you remember that, right? <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> I had to. So it was built in two stages. During the first stage, 23 men fell to their deaths while working on the bridge. Because of this, work began to move slower and slower until finally, people stopped showing up. People didn't want to come and work on this bridge. They, they could die. So eventually, the people leading the bridge committee, the people who were building the bridge, they built the largest safety net that had ever been built. And eventually, when the second phase began, there were 10 more workers within the first week that fell off the bridge but every single one of them was saved by that safety net. Confidence in their working conditions actually began to increase the efficiency of the work of the bridge. They said it was about 25% faster than it was before. See, so the safety and security of their working condition caused the workers to work at a much more efficient pace than without the safety net. So last week, we introduced this new song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. Did you really think that I wasn't going to talk about music when I came up here? <laughs> so as just a note, a side note of how we choose songs um, here at New Life, um, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we believe that the songs that we sing here need to be rooted in Scripture. They must be rooted in Scripture so that they would indeed dwell richly within us. I've heard it said before, show me your church's list of songs and I'll show you their theology. And just so you guys know, that has been incredibly convicting for me just as the worship director here um, in making sure that our, our theological diet is as balanced as it can be. So this song that we, that we sang last week is such an awesome example of this doctrine. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. See, when we sing this song together, we affirm the truth that when the storms of life begin to swell, and when we might despair in our lives, that Christ in his infinite grace and mercy will hold us fast to him. And if we don't truly believe that, then what? We wouldn't have any assurance of what's promised us after this life. So as I dug into this passage, I had to just kind of chuckle and just marvel at God's sovereignty. You see, disagreement over this particular doctrine was, um, was a big reason why I left a previous church. I had had long conversations with the pastor where we, we dug into scripture and we tried to look at what God's word says about this particular topic. At the end of that, I found that I stood in complete opposite side of what they believed in, in, in accordance to this doctrine. Now, I first wanna say that the debate over this particular doctrine of eternal security has been going on for centuries. Um, this is by no means a doctrine that would disqualify someone from being a believer. However, I was the worship director and I led the youth group at this church. 
So I couldn't feel like, in the end, that I could lead effectively through a disagreement on this, this heavy of a topic. Um, I was second-guessing song lyrics when I would bring them to the church. Um, I would have to make sure that when I was teaching to the youth group that, um, you know, something lined up with the church, or I didn't say something that would be in disagreement um, with the church, which was, which was really difficult. So in the end, um, I handed in my resignation. Some people said to me at the time, well, why, why is that so important? It's just, it's just doctrine. <laughs> and while, yes, it is just doctrine, um, this particular one serves as a lens by which I view our salvation, I view God's sovereignty, and my safety in Christ. So we can't just live with just doctrine. We must always take that doctrine and ask, what does this mean for my life? And how does this affect my view of God? So now I was, I was pretty young when the show Seinfeld came out. And in fact, I, I wasn't even born when Seinfeld premiered. I apologize. I just made a lot of you feel really old, I bet. <laughs> came out, I think, in August of 89. I was born in October of 89. So yeah. But I've, I've never really watched it until recently. I was very curious about it as people have talked about how iconic it is. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll watch it through. It's on Netflix now. And um, so I've been watching through it. There's this one episode where Jerry's car gets stolen. And there, there's a really hilarious back and forth with um, the guy who stole the car, where they call his car phone. And yes, I know what a car phone is. I'm not, not that young. Uh, my dad had one of those back in the day. So he goes and he makes a reservation for a rental car. And his interaction with the lady at the counter is something that really, I think, reflects the doctrine of eternal security. So let's, uh, let's check it out. Oh, I'm sorry. We have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservation. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. If you did, I'd have a car. So you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. Oh, man. So like, like Jerry says in that clip, the most important part of the reservation is the holding of the reservation. So we see in this passage that Jesus does have this power for our heavenly reservation, and he promises us that he will. So he concludes with this statement in verse 30 that says, I and the Father are one. So this is, the mo this is the first explicit statement that Jesus makes about his oneness with the Father. So this doesn't mean that Jesus and the Father are one person. We know that Jesus the Son and God the Father are two distinct members of the Trinity. So the Greek word that's used here is hes. Now the masculine form of that word, and I, I'm not a Greek scholar, I've just been researching quite a bit. Um, the masculine form of that word would suggest oneness in person. However, John uses this adjective in the neuter form, suggesting that the oneness shared with the Father and Jesus is oneness in purpose and in will and in nature. They both are at one in their commitment to holding us in their divine hands and preventing anything 
from separating us from their love. Jesus is claiming equality with God and their oneness secures us. John speaks of this unity in the very first verse of the Gospel of John that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So this all is a pretty bold answer and a statement to make to the Pharisees. Jesus, as his answer to them, was like this. He said, I am the Christ, yes, after they had said, tell us plainly. But I am infinitely more than that. So let's take a look at their reaction, starting in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus has said something here that the Jews would say would be blasphemy. He's claiming equality with God. So they picked up stones, they're ready to kill him. So this isn't the first time that they've tried to kill him for for Jesus saying that he's equal with God. Back in John 5, it said they were seeking to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. Back in John 8, he said, Jesus says, therefore Abraham, Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, he doesn't escape from them immediately like he has in the past, but instead, he asks them a question. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus has already publicly healed a blind man, healed the lame man at the pool, and John is constantly talking about the works and signs that Jesus did. So Jesus wants to know, what what did I do? What have I done? Which of these works that I have shown you throughout all of this time, which one of them are you going to stone me for? So the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man Make yourself God. See, they don't care about his works here. They don't care that he's healing people. They don't care about any of that. But they fully understood Jesus' claim to be God. Now, these are the most ironic words that I've ever read in the Bible, are those words from the Pharisees. They tell Jesus that he is a mere man claiming to be God, which would have been blasphemy for them if this was not Jesus So they actually are the real blasphemers, right? They had it completely backwards, saying that Jesus was a mere man claiming to be God. Jesus is God who made himself man, and it's never the other way around. So Jesus then deflects their accusation in verse 34. says, Jesus answered him, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to which the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? What? (laughs) Anybody else at first glance really confused by that? Yeah, yeah, I I was. Uh, Paul actually had said, he's like, good luck (laughs) when when we first talked about it. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is he's quoting Psalm 82, 6 to argue his case about his claim to deity. Back in Psalm 82, it says, I said you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. In the Psalm, Jesus is addressing the human rulers and judges 
that he, whom he had given the authority to judge people. They had failed to do this, so God is rebuking them and judging those people. If these human rulers were called gods, lowercase g, then Jesus had every right as the Messiah, as the one that God consecrated and sent into the world to call himself the Son of God. And to me, this is just another example in Scripture. I, the, the theme of Scripture, as we sang in that first song today, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's the greater Adam. He's the better David. He's everything that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is the better example of all of that. Um, I love the book of Hebrews. We just finished reading that in my D group this week. We're just constantly, it's Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I just, I love that. So in, in this little uh, defense, I, I would say, um, this deflection, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. And that's, it. that's Jesus' insight to how he feels about Scripture. How often do we hear people say that you can't believe Scripture, that you can't believe what the Bible says? See, I, I actually, at one point in, early in my faith, that was me. And I was, I was dating uh, my future wife at the time, and I, I easily, she, she should have broken up with me, being completely honest. We were, we had, we had a, we were talking about it when I was preparing this. She said, I, I wasn't going to break up with you. And I said, well, had I proposed to you and I still believed this, would you have said yes? And she's like, no, definitely, definitely not. Because <laughs> for me, I, I thought that. I said, the Bible is written by, by sinful man. How can we trust it? Um, I praise God that one day the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and they convicted me, it convicted me that scripture is the inerrant word of God and that I can trust in it. And that's the same for all of us. So if you don't trust in scripture today, um, ask God to, to work with that in your lives. In 2 Timothy, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if this is Jesus' stance on Scripture, why should our stance be anything less? So this statement that Jesus makes here, referencing you know, just an obscure passage from the Psalms, it does something very important. It momentarily stays the hand of the Pharisees. Jesus gives them then one more invitation. So we know that this was not his time to die. It was not his method of dying. So Jesus wasn't going to be killed here. Um, they had asked them to tell them plainly that that wasn't enough for them since he already had told them. So now Jesus invites them to believe because of his works, which if we remember is the entire purpose of the gospel of John. Picking back up in verse 37. If I am doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, or else believe the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus here once again references the works of his Father. In John 5, it says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the Father sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In John 14, which we'll get to, he says, do, not do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, 
but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus, in his compassion, he invites them once again to see him for who he is. They couldn't connect Jesus' words and his works. Jesus had told them they were not among his sheep. But in his loving compassion for them, he gives them another chance. He says, please believe me. Believe my words. They have eternal life. And if you don't believe those, then believe my works. We see in verse 39, it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. See, interestingly, though, this story, it doesn't end here. Um, There's a bit of an epilogue where John shows a contrast between the Pharisees in Jerusalem and the people that were across the Jordan. So in verse 40, it says, He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. See, Jesus goes back to where his ministry began. And these people that were there, they saw that this was Jesus. It confirmed all of John's words about him. John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. In John 3, it says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. I am so thankful that that John gave us this picture at the end of this entire section of scripture. After seeing the lack of belief in the Pharisees, we see that this story ends with many people believing in Jesus. So John brings our attention back to John the Baptist. So this was John the Baptist's ministry to simply and humbly point people to Jesus and rightly tell who Jesus is. Back in John 3, he says, You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So the Pharisees did not believe him, but these these people did. After John the Baptist was gone, we still see the evidence of his ministry. John did no works, he did no signs, no miracles, any of that, but he loved to tell others about Jesus. That was his entire purpose, was to point people to Jesus So what does all this mean for us? C.S. Lewis says, either Jesus is a totally mad person on a par with a man who claims to be a poached egg out of his mind, uttering meaningless, garbled, rambling, megalomaniacal statements, or he is telling the truth. And if he is telling the truth, he is the most important being in the universe. Jesus of Nazareth is the center of everything, To ignore him is to grope in darkness, to live in rebellion, to miss out on joy, peace, and love, and end at last as part of the world's fiery judgment. 
Gotta love C.S. Lewis, right? So where, where do you stand today? Do you identify more with the Pharisees who ignore who Jesus is? What keeps you today from surrendering and believing in Jesus? Do you doubt that he claims, that, that he is who he claims to be? Are you maybe fearful about maybe what other people might think if you follow Jesus? Maybe what your parents might think, maybe what um, your friends might think. Maybe you'd have to make significant life changes and that, that scares you. But I can tell you today, Jesus and following him is worth it. But don't believe simply because of what I say, but believe because of what Jesus says. Maybe like the Pharisees, you don't believe his words. But Jesus told them, even if you don't believe my words, believe the works that I've done. His works prove that he is the Christ. Jesus himself said that if he, doesn't, if he isn't doing the works of the Father, don't believe him. But if he's doing the works of the Father, then we need to believe in him. His works are written here so that we may believe that he is the Messiah, the one who paid the penalty of our sins and promises to give us life everlasting. Jesus invited the Pharisees to believe in him, and he's doing the same for you today. Maybe you're one of the sheep. Do you know Jesus' words? Do you follow and obey him? So this is our confidence today as sheep, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Maybe today you're wrestling with your salvation. Maybe you're wrestling with that assurance. Maybe you see everything that's going on in the world today and, and think, how can anyone feel, feel safe? There is no greater comfort in our lives to know that Jesus has us held in his hands and that nothing, nothing can take us from him. Consider the story of the Golden Gate Bridge from earlier. With the assurance of that safety, the work was done with much more confidence and efficiency than without it. See, Jesus is our security. And maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's coworkers. <coughs> Our work is to take the good news of Jesus to those people. And like John the Baptist, point them to Jesus. Parents, maybe it's your kids. That's, you know, as a, as a kind of new parent, you know, I've come to an understanding that that's, that's my first ministry. That's my mission field. It's my kids. We need to take God's word to all of those people that we would know that don't know him and point them to Jesus. So why would we work without that safety net for even one more day? We know that we're safe in the Father's hands. We know that we're safe in Jesus' hands. Our confidence is not in our own power or our own merit, but it's in Christ in us. It's my favorite line from any worship song. It comes from in Christ alone. that says, no power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So today, stand secure in the Father's love, in his hand,
confidently and boldly tell people about Jesus and trust that God will grow that harvest in ways that we can never imagine. Let's pray together. Father God, I am so thankful for your promises, Lord, that we know they're true. God, thank you for the assurance of our faith. Thank you, God, that we get to live on this earth and just tell people about you. God, today, help us be convicted of this from your word. Put it on our minds, people, that we need to tell about Jesus. We need to share the good news with, Lord, and give us that confidence, give us that boldness to go and point people to you. So as we go out, Lord, I pray that you give us, give us that confidence every day and help us to align our hearts and our will with yours. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.